Welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation Podcast. I'm Enid Portuguez, the Communications Director for the Foundation. We really love it when writers who work together in rooms reunite to talk about that special time in their careers. Today's podcast is a recording of our masterclass with Winnie Holtzman, the creator of My So-Called Life. The event reunited her with Jason Kadams, who got to start writing for TV on the show, which first aired almost 21 years to the day the event was held. Along with reliving lessons learned on set, the two also read Jason's favorite scene from Winnie's pilot, which was a great moment for any fan of the show. Winnie also shared some sage advice about writing for TV, film, and Broadway, including a great anecdote about the first musical she ever wrote. It's a wonderful and humorous conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Don't forget to check out more upcoming events on WGFoundation.org. Thank you. Hi. Um, I have an extra microphone if anybody would like one. Um, uh, thanks so much for coming, for being here. Uh, I'm uh, very excited about tonight. Uh, so a lot of TV uh, writers have, their, uh, have a story about their first TV job, uh, how they worked every day until 3 in the morning, or the showrunner didn't show up in the room until 8 o'clock at night, or couldn't make a decision, or the network kept changing what the show was about. There's a million war stories, and I, I don't know what I did to be so, so charmed to have Winnie Holtzman as my first boss in television and my mentor, working on her magnificent show, My So-Called Life. The show played only 18 episodes, yet it is simply and unarguably one of the finest shows in the history of television, in my humble opinion. Um, what I learned from Winnie I still employ every single day that I try to write. In addition, in addition to creating my so-called life, when he was a seminal writer on the Edswick and Marcel Herskovitz groundbreaking shows, 30-something and once and again, she was uh, the co-creator with her daughter, Savannah, of the series Huge. And oh yeah, she also uh, wrote the book for this obscure musical, Wicked. Currently, she's working with Cameron Crowe on Roadies, a new television show for Showtime. Her writing is beautiful, filled with humor, irony, heart, and symmetry, brimming with emotion. She has an ability more than any writer I've ever known to capture the pure essence of her characters and put them out there for us to see in their entirety, their beauty, their warts, their striving to be more. Winnie's characters are real and flawed and beautiful and hopeful. To read Winnie's scripts or to see her work is to feel more human. Coupled with Winnie's talent as a writer, she's an amazingly articulate, generous, and forthcoming as a human being and an artist. I cannot think of anyone who has inspired me more as a writer. We're all very lucky to welcome Winnie Holtzman. Thank you. Hi. Um, wow. 
I'm not going to say anything else. I, you, take it from there. My, my big thing is I want to ask you what I taught you so I can remember to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you have to detail exactly what I taught you because I'm about to possibly go into a TV show and I need help. <laughs> I need to know what I did. Um, so I wanted to spend this time um, just kind of talking about um, your process. You know, I want to, I want, you know, I think it's, 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 um, as I said, I've, you know, I have such admiration for what you do and your approach to do it, to doing it. And every time that I, not only the times that I've worked with you, but every time that I've gotten the chance to talk to you um, about, about your writing, about your process, it's, it's really been so illuminating to me. And um, so I think this is, is like a really, will be a really wonderful opportunity if we, if we focus on, um, you know, on kind of, you know, so I have a few, you know, like a few sort of areas of questions that will go through different parts of your career and just kind of get you started hopefully talking about this. Get me warmed up. Get you warmed up. So my, uh, my first question is a two-part question which is, do you wake up in the morning and think, I can't wait to write today? And if the answer to that is no, how do you fool yourself into actually writing? <laughs> how do, you do you discipline yourself? Do you bribe yourself? What do you do? And, and where does that inspiration come? Well, that's, a, that's more than a two-part question. That's almost like that could be the whole day. Um, I have to say, I, I don't wake up and am eager to write. I, I have the opposite of that. I actually um, have a lot of, you know, it's interesting. I brought this quote um, from George O'Keefe that I sent out to some friends recently, and I, I think I might read it. Um, but I, 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 I continue to experience a lot of fear about writing, and I think the big change for me in recent years is I've stopped waiting for that to go away, and I've stopped being so angry at myself for having it, and I've started feeling more like, and I don't think this is maybe for everyone, and you know, maybe there are some people here that I wouldn't want to talk to who don't experience that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, if just keep it to yourself, if you. Um, but. For me, I feel like I've started to really, to really let it be okay in my own mind, because of course that's where I live. That's where we all live. Not in my mind, but in each of our minds. And what we're working with is our mind, and what we're hoping to do is get to a place where we drop down, or, or you might say levitate up, or however you picture it, into a place where you're accessing a lot, lot more, right, than your conscious mind when it's frightened and concerned about other people and results and all of those things can do. And how do you do that? How are you going to do that? So that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about. Like, I, I definitely... Um, you know, like, for instance, I, I was sharing with some, some friends, I... I have a play that's being produced this fall it, in the, on the East Coast. And um, this is a play I've been working on off and on for seven years. And there reached a point, I think I may have told you this, where I really felt like, and I'm not just saying this because it's my name, but I felt like Winnie the Pooh. You know, remember the story where <laughs> it gets 
the little teddy bear gets stuck and it can't move out, you know, it, it can't go out and it can't go in. Oh, it's all, that's not a good feeling. Um, I, I really felt stuck and I felt like I can't finish this, but I also, I also can't give it up. You know, you know what I mean? And I felt very lost within the play, literally. And um, I made, this, this took many months of, of, of kind of, I guess you could even say despair on some level. Because, you know, it didn't have a deadline and it was promised to no one, if you know what I mean. And people are nodding. And that, <laughs> and that was making it much, much scarier and harder for me. I didn't know how to trick myself. You said, how do you trick yourself? I didn't know how to trick myself into believing that there was a deadline when I knew there wasn't. But I did this thing that might sound really morbid, but I'm just going to say it, which is I reached a point, and somebody helped me with this who knows me very well, and they helped me to say to myself, if I was still working on this play on my deathbed, like if I, if I was still working on it, would I be able to look back and go, I'm glad I never gave up on my play. And that meant a lot to me. I can see some people list, like sort of take drinking that one in. Um, because what I really needed was to let it go that I was necessarily going to finish. I needed to let it be okay that I might not ever finish. And that was what allowed me to finish. So when you talk about how do you trick yourself and how do you bribe yourself, I do think I do those things, but maybe not as crassly as I used to. You know, when I just would, one of my tricks used to be like, I'll take a hotel room for the weekend. And, you know, Savannah and I did that during Huge at one point. But, you know, then you just kind of lie around and watch TV. Like, um, <laughs> And you sort of think, well, I'm spending so much money. Surely I'll write now. <laughs> it doesn't always happen. Um, so, so my thing has become a little bit more like, um, if you'll be okay with this, um, on a spiritual level, saying, saying, you know, looking at my own life and what my own very, very personal goals are for life. And to me, it became a thing of like, I just don't want to give up. I just don't want to give up. And if I'm writing this until the, my last breath and I never solved it, quote unquote, or finished it, quote unquote, because those are concepts, sort of. But I, was, but I never stopped writing it and I never gave up on it, meaning I never gave up on me. What, what, how would I feel? And I felt like I would feel pretty, pretty good about that. So the reason I have my phone out is not that I'm just rude. It's that I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to read um, this, this um, quote from, that, I, that I emailed to myself from, um, well, now I can't find it because I'm under pressure. Um, here, here it is. It's George O'Keefe, and the quote is, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life, and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I wanted to do. And isn't that great? And when I saw that quote, I really related, because I just, I just haven't had that fear stuff go away. I mean, of course, as you can imagine, it goes away, you know, you know, at times. Um, and I have like, I get all, you know, excited or whatever, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm caught up. But when I think about it, I get scared. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I just have to let, I just have to. I think I used to think that that meant something really, really negative about me as a writer. And I think that's the big thing that I've learned to drop. I think I've learned to, you know, I think that 
there's so much of the human condition that's about living with fear, the unknown. We all, like in other words, like I'll say to my agent something like, well, I don't know if the show's going to get picked up. It's the unknown, but I'm such an idiot. Like crossing the street, I don't know if I'm going to be killed. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not the show. I mean, I, it's my, the fact that I'm human and was born on Earth. I mean, everything's, com <laughs> everything's completely, nothing is certain. So it's like we live with a lot of fear that we don't always, but I think as writers, we... When we're in fear, we get very, we get very tense, and those those accessy things that you want to drop in, you know, those things that are just godsends, where, where you go, oh my God, she could do this, you know, and that kind of thing. You're not going to have that so much if you're gripped with fear. So I try to just, I used to try to, like I say, to not have fear, and now it's more like I go, fear, welcome. <laughs> Uh, when you when you're when you're working through, uh, especially in the stages of creating something new, something challenging like that, like a like a, a play, right? Um, and you're in the sort of the challenging stages. Do you do you, is it all stuff that you're dealing with on in your head by yourself? Do you talk to people about it? Do you have people that you go to? And you know what what's your you know, just what are some strategies you use? Well, my strategies are definitely people. I definitely have a little, I and mean, it's not a huge group, and one of them's over there. <laughs> but um, I, I, I certainly have people that I turn to for help. Uh, and I, and we've talked about this. I think that sometimes just the very act of turning to someone for help unlocks that thing and allows you to have the the more inspired idea. I absolutely believe that. That's just happened to me so many times. Um, but also, my strategies, you know, sometimes you, sometimes what it is is that thing of like, of having faith. I mean, I know now I'm using like the big words and, you know, the words with the capital letters and stuff, but, you know, faith, it, it really is an act of faith to start writing something mm -hmm. because Basically, what it's basically saying is, I'm going to get to be confused for a really long time, <laughs> and I'm going to not know exactly what I'm doing. You know, that's at least how it feels like to me. I'm really not going to know what I'm doing. So many times I'll have the, have you had the fantasy of like, what if I had a job where I really knew how to do it? <laughs> I've so had that fantasy. Um, but I think that is truly a fantasy. I mean, like I said, I think part of being human is this feeling of not knowing what you're doing. Like, how do you really do this? So I think that. And yeah, yeah. And this, this, um, the play, and then we'll move on to other things, but it's, I'm fascinated by this. Um, you said, you, you know, it's, it's something that you've worked on already for seven years on and off. How do you know, like, when you, when you have a, the inkling or just the seed of the notion of what it is, what makes you know that this is something that you're is worth mm. living with? What is the thing that you know, like, is you know? I, I think as writers, you know, it's one of the things that don't doesn't I don't think get talked about that much. But it's such a big question. What are the things that are worth spending our time on, knowing that 
whatever it is may not ever come to fruition. Uh, you know, wh what is it that and gripped in, you about this And in some ways, you almost idea? have to like kind of embrace that, don't yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, you have to let it be okay that this may not come to fruition since you cannot, you know, read the future. And I think it, to me, I really equate it. I mean, I am in a long-term relationship. I've been married a long time, and. What's a long time, you say? Um, <laughs> do you think 31 years is a long time? So, okay, so that's a long time. Because so I know some of you were thinking, oh, sure, like it's like been seven or eight years. Um, so I have a long-term relationship, and I really equate it to that kind of thing, where if you're really in a relationship with somebody, you know, you spend some time when you're not in love with them anymore. And you even are, are wondering what you ever saw in them. But if you were really in love with them in the beginning, I believe, and it was with their soul, not just physically, not just on a superficial level, then I believe that there's something to tap into. And I'm why I'm talking about this is um, because I think it's the same with a subject or with an idea. I think there's an idea that you get, and you can wake up one day, and, and that idea just doesn't look very good. It really doesn't. <laughs> and um, all the other ideas are so much. And, 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 you, and you literally will say to yourself, why am I with this idea? <laughs> I, I have like the worst idea. And, and, and just like with a person, if as, as harshly as you judge them, you know, as harshly as you judge them, you, you know, there's this beautiful quote. Um, I happen to really love Marianne Williamson, and I don't know if this is her quote, but she talks about this a lot, where she talks about the concept that we think um, that we're going to get to know someone and then decide if we can love them and then love them or not. But the truth is that what we, what really, on a spiritual level, what happens truthfully with a capital T, is that we decide to love them, and that in that sense we can get to know them. Do you, do you see what I mean? And I believe that that is the same with a project. Like, I think, for instance, like, you kind of make, you give your heart in a funny way, and you kind of go, you know what, this is going to have some, like, terrible moments, and I'm going to give myself to this. A and that doesn't mean you do it perfectly. I mean, God knows I do not. But you just, you just have made an inner decision to love to give to give love to this it's like a little plant right and you're going to keep loving it and watering it and eventually you're go uh, well where, I don't know where I'm going with that sentence <laughs> because it, it may not work out you know that's the other thing I mean work out in what way I mean it may not be what your fantasy was of what it was doing in your life you know what I mean like when I was young um, I wrote my first musical. And um, the people who know me know this very well. But it got rather savagely reviewed in New York press. And one, one reviewer liked it, but nine reviewers like hated it. Very, really, really hated it. Not just, oh, it's not that good. Um, and um, so at the time, I, I was like, um, you know, I was like at a crossroads, you could say. I was kind of blown away by all the, all the, all the criticism. And there was a part of me that was thinking, does this mean I'm not meant to be a writer and all of this? And I had kind of a deep moment where I was, I remember I was on Broadway, I was pushing a stroller, and, um, and there was something in it. 
um, and I was thinking to myself, literally, <laughs> that's a, that's a sad image. <laughs> um, and I was thinking to myself, literally, like, is this going to be the kind of situation where if I don't give up writing, I'm kind of being an idiot? Do you see what I mean? Like, because I've been told by all these authority figures that what you wrote was really bad. And I had this revelation. And the revelation was, oh, so you're going to base the rest of your life on a bunch, like nine people that you've never met and their opinion? And it really seemed to me at that moment a crossroads. Like, I could choose one way or I could choose the other. And I'm not saying I don't, you know, slip back. I think we all make resolutions and find that we are you know, wavering inside and have to re-acknowledge re sort of what we already know. But I was, that changed me because I started to go, okay, I'm just going to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and that was right around the time I did meet Marshall and Ed. A few, uh, two short years later, I mm -hmm. think, or something like that, I did meet Marshall and Ed. So mm -hmm. it was kind of, would have been a shame if I'd given up at that point. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, okay. <laughs> I, you, this is, I really feel like I can just let you keep, well, I talk this is wonderful. <laughs> no, it's really so, I mean, it's, I, it's, I mean, I, I, know I, very I feel like, you know, you're in such deep places. I look down <laughs> at my crappy <laughs> questions. I want to rewrite my stupid questions. I'm like, oh my God. I'm, okay, here's the question. <laughs> All right, see what you can do with this shitty question. <laughs> um, Just know that I love you. Really okay. <laughs> so getting to the, I wanted to talk about the process of writing on television shows, and in particular, the writer's room. The writer's room, which is like considered the standard, the standard thing to do on television shows, um, but it's not really how it has worked uh, when I worked with you on My Soka Life, and I know when you worked with other, on other shows with Ed and Marshall. And um, I wanted to sort of talk a little bit about your process of breaking stories on a series. Right. And, um, and you know, how that, you know, how you got started and how you sort of trained with Ed and Marshall on this, how you adapted it over the time you, and it hasn't evolved at all uh, and, and changed over the sh different shows that you've done. I don't know if it's evolved that much. Um, although what I think I was, I would say is that I think every show seems to have its own little reality. Right. And it's sort of like you can't cookie cutter it. I don't believe, I, at least to me, I can't. But I think um, thi the thing that I really got from Marshall and Ed and how they, how they were doing 30-something, and they just, I was saying this before, they just made this up. They just created a way of doing things because they were comfortable writing that way. It wasn't like some scheme, and it wasn't, there was no other purpose. It w was what they were comfortable with creatively. So what they liked to do, we would sort of sit, we would not be in a big group. They did not want a big group. So they would talk amongst them, each other, and they would bring in one, one person at a time, whoever was going to write that episode, and talk about what the episode could be. And sometimes on 30-something, 
and probably on our show, on so-called life. If you had an idea for an episode, I'm sure that happened to you, you could go, well, here's an idea for an episode. But I think we would, we would sit initially and we would sort of go, what do we, what, you know, in other words, here's our premise. What would we not want to miss? Like, like, in other words, if you've got a teenage girl, you're not going to want to miss the first kiss. You're not going to want to miss that she learns how to drive or she takes her first driving lesson. You're not going to want to miss the fact that, you know, maybe, um, you know, you know, she, in our case, you know, maybe she goes, remember we worked on this together, she goes to somebody else's house and she likes their mother better. And, and all of those kind of ideas came from our pasts and our memories and our feelings sort of tapping back into what was that really like type of thing. So we would have almost a little wish list of things we wouldn't want to leave out kind of thing. And um, then I I mean, I don't know, do you do it really differently? Because I mean, then you want to feel like you're going somewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want to, <coughs> but I can't remember. We never knew when we were going to be taken off the air. I can't remember having a real like, um, sort of super arching plan for mm -hmm. so-called life? Right. Do you think we did? I'm not sure we did. <laughs> um, I think we had, uh, and I think things were changing on that show a little bit as we were going. Right. Um, it's funny, I mean, this isn't the same subject, but I just love that story about what happened to Rayanne on your script, on Life of Brian, because do you want to tell that story? Or well, do you remember it? Yeah, well, <clears throat> the story was, you know, I, I wrote this um, this episode of my so-called life called Life of Brian, which was the, um, um, the episode where instead of it being told through Angela's voiceover and Angela's point of view, it was told through Brian Krakow's. And Brian was sort of her, her sort of nerdy neighbor who and male was counterpart in a way. Male counterpart who was sort of not so secretly in love with her. And so you got to like hear everything from his perspective. And um, so this was like, I was very excited. This was kind of, I had written other episodes, co-written or written episodes before this. Right. But this one was sort of a special one. It was really my moment. And um, I was so excited and, and uh, about it. And, you know, we worked so hard to get the script just exactly the way we wanted it, and then um, the first day on of that we were shooting, um, I was on set, and um, you know, it, it was, and basically, um, we, I was with the director of the episode, Todd Holland, and he, and we got, a PA came up to us and said, um, AJ is in her trailer, AJ played Rayan, the character Rayan Graf, and um, you have to come over here, you know, you basically, there's an issue. And the issue was that she had contracted chickenpox. And so this was like the first, we were shooting, you know, you shoot an episode in eight days. So she was basically out of this episode that we, w you know, had planned so much and she had this she very- She was a big part of the plot. Major plot and it was a very plotty, the whole story was about this school dance and everybody would you know it was so intricate and everything was connected to everything else it was it was a very kind of complex plot and what you know er, you know one thing everything tied in together exactly and suddenly we had a situation where we had to obviously send her home why she came to set with the chicken box 
<laughs> you can talk to AJ. But, um, but basically, you know, she had to go home, and um, we had to rethink. We had in to a second. The script in a second. The, while we were shooting. On our feet. What we were doing. And, but this great thing came out of it. Yeah. Well, the, what came out of it, and this is so often, I think, the case with these kind of situations, I would, wouldn't you say, we love so much better. Yeah. And it, it was better. Right. And that's what's so cool about like last minute disasters and things that go wrong or things that you can't have. Um, and there's a lot of that in TV. I know like when I was young, I used to think when you'd watch TV, you'd think, oh, they wanted it all like that. And that's exactly <laughs> what, what they, that was their dream. But um, <laughs> you know, then when you do it, you're constantly trying to save money and cut corners and do things cheaper and, and stuff like that. And what I loved about what happened with the episode is that because she, we couldn't have her, she couldn't go to the dance. So what she did is she flaked. We, we made it be that she set up a whole, right. she set in motion a whole farcical plot. And then she just, she goes like, well, I have a drinking problem and I really shouldn't go. And which we had already set up, luckily, uh, she did have a drinking problem, and she, was seeing a, and she was seeing a counselor. So it was all organic, and it was felt so much fun mm -hmm. to just have been given this gift of like this problem that actually made it more interesting. Um, just one of those things I always think of. And it's part, you know, I mean, I think it is part of the, uh, one of the joys of doing television where you know, when something like that happens at the, at least for me, at the beginning when, like that day when she came and she, I mean, it was the most horrific thing oh, in the yeah, world. You must have been so um, I was, I was devastated. And before I got to see you, like it was Todd Holland and I literally, like I had worked on, you know, 10 episodes of TV in my life. That was my, you know, claim to fame. And Todd was like, what are we going to do? And I would be, you're asking me? I don't know, you know, and, um. But, it, but what came out of it when we got to sort of figure out the, the plan was really great. And over, but, but that happens all the time in different ways in television. It's not always, you know. A person. A person. It's, it's, it could be the weather, or it could be money, or it could be um, just, you know, production concerns, or it could be, you know, you're um, constantly having to, um, you know, reimagine what you first envisioned. And that's when you when you start out at the beginning, you always feel like, oh, that's this horrific thing. And what right. you come to understand is that it's actually, um, you know, um, going to potentially make it better. As yes. it did happen in that in that episode, and it happened so many times. And that's that's the thing that. And over time, as as you keep doing it, you know, you get less um, freaked out by the, you know, when something like that comes up. Exactly. And you're just like, oh, okay, this is what's, this is what's going to happen on this particular episode, and we're going to... Exactly. Yeah. I used to call it the crisis du jour. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, actually, Al Alan Poole called it that. Right. When he used to come over to me, and he would go, well, here's the crisis du jour. <laughs> and in a way, it was sort of, it was sort of welcoming and relaxing. It's like he's, he made it sort of like a dessert. <laughs> um... So you um, are a writer who has written in so many forms b between network television, cable television, musical theater, dramatic theater, and features. 
Um, you've lived in so many of th these different worlds. Um, and not that many writers have done that. Um, and so I, I, I really wanted to ask you, I'm so curious about, um, you know, how just you working in these different forms, are there, do you find doing, working in one form, do you find them different? Is there just a commonality of all of them? Or is, it, is there one, certain ones where you're, it's more joyous to process? Definitely more painful. Not. Definitely yeah. not. More painful. More nothing, painful. Nothing could be more painful than writing. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just it's just writing is painful. End of story. Right. Um, um, with occasional you know bursts of happiness. Um, I, I I think my answer is I see them as more alike than different, and also I never had a plan. These things just kind of. This is the turns my life took. And except I think with writing that play that I was describing before, because I really did, you know, I had I had studied as a as a young one. I had studied uh, Stanislavski and done acting, and I'd sort of started in theater, you could say. And I think I'd always kind of promised myself or or wished very fervently that I could write a play that was not a musical, just because there's nothing wrong with musicals, um, obviously, and I love them. Um, but they are a team sport. You know, they're very much of a, a team effort. And not that a play isn't, because of course a play is too, but I think I was looking for something that where I could be mm. a little bit more of an author and not so much just collaborating, although collaborating is very dear to me and means a lot to me. Um, so they're all great, but I, I did feel this need, um, and that's what where the play came from, I think, to some extent. I did feel this need to just to be able to write something and in a way not confer with anyone, if you know what I mean, or not have to, not have to, um, yeah, confer. Right. Like to just, to just. Of course, now you know I confer with the director, but it's different. It's that's different mm -hmm. than collaborating with other writers. Um, again, which I love, and I think with TV, if you naturally collaborative, that's a great trait mm -hmm. in television, and I think that's part of what. Um, helped me um, kind of get my sea legs in TV. Mm -hmm. That it's so collaborative, and there's like a sort of a, sh a way that I'm, uh, that my personality is, uh, such as it is, is does like to collaborate and does like to build something. We were talking about building things. Um, you know, just build something together. It's pretty. It's pretty exciting. Uh, but then once in a while, like, I want, I mean, I just really had this desire to express something more private, I guess you could almost say. Mm. Um, and that's where the play came from. Right. Um, so for people who here, let's say, who want, would like to be a writer on a show that you're running. Right. Um, what do you look for? What do you, what, 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 you know, what qualities do you look for? Subservience. Subservience. <laughs> Uh, it's such an underestimated quality. <laughs> but what sparks for you when you read when you read people's work or meet writers? What do you feel is are the qualities that kind of are ones that make you feel oh this is somebody that I could work with or this is somebody that I'd be excited to uh, collaborate with in some way? Well, that's a good question. I mean, of course you're writers, so we're writers, so you want to read something that is feeling. That where you want to keep reading, right? And I don't think there's any substitute for that. Right. Um, um, I, 
I mean, I think I'm looking for somebody who I feel like, and I, I know this is a bit of a cliche, especially it's been said in this room probably a lot, but you're, you, want, you do want somebody that you feel like you can kind of just hang out with a little bit. Right. Because you are going to hang out with that person probably. And I don't mean, you know, it has to be that the person is a lot, a lot of fun. But if there's, if there's, if it isn't easy to kind of just talk to them in a way, communicate with them, it could be difficult. Although even as I say that, you know, I've certainly met people, um, you know, who are brilliant writers and that's not their biggest strong suit. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not maybe the most comfortable people. I mean, I think I'm sort of a closeted shy person. Um, in that I have like, <laughs> do, do you do you ever think that you might be like that? I'm an actual I'm an actual shy person. That's it. But you mean to say you say you're an actual shy person, but you spent your entire adult life surrounded by huge groups of people. Right. I mean, having to deal with them all day long, much more than even I have. I mean, you've done so much more TV than I have. How can you stand it? I mean. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that is, I mean, the part of it is to me that, you know, in, in who, it's a lot of who you surround yourself with. And to me, yes. like with writers, it's so important that not only are they are writers that you, um, you connect with the, what they're writing, their, their work, but also it's really important that you connect with them as people that you want to spend time with because you're going to be spending so much time with. And also, like, I, it's, I mean, I think one of the things that's really important to me when I meet with the writers and I'm going to, you know, putting together, um, you know, a staff that it's, there are people that I feel are going to work together well. Like a team. Like a team. Right. And that you can kind of, sometimes I could feel like I could tell if somebody has a personality that even if they're very t talented, that mm -hmm. they won't be able to just kind of like look at it at, we won't be able to be able to embrace the sort of democracy mm -hmm. of this form. And, um, and I, and I, you know, I'm wary of that because I do feel like I w want the process to be, um, somewhat fun, a joyous one for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that is a level. I mean, I've been talking about pain and misery, but, <laughs> <laughs> but there is, there is um, a level, of course, where you do where you do want it to be fun right. because it truly can be fun. And there, there's no, you know, maybe I'm being very contradictory. I hope not, but there is a level to where, in a funny way, that's almost matters more than anything, because right. I, I mean, I do, I do think that there's an there's an aspect of that that is very important, that, there, that it be a, a, a positive experience for people that, you know, even though there's going to be painful moments. I mean, looking back at my so-called life, for example, um, you know, that show was special when you watched it on TV, but the process of making that show was. was incredibly special. And everybody who was involved in that show, the, the, the writers on the show, Everybody, all the actors on the show, our directors, um, it, it, it was really like, you know, you couldn't help but um, feel that mm -hmm. when you were part of it. And it was a, you know, we shot out of this 
kind of little we had nothing. warehouse, tiny little warehouse building. We didn't have soundproofing. Right. Do you remember that I if you flushed the toilet, you couldn't flush the toilet when people were shooting? Right. I mean, you couldn't flush that toilet. <laughs> you know, you could. You had to go to another toilet. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah. There, it's like right. there was just so much weirdness. It was. Yeah. It wasn't even soundproofed. Right. Um, and then we were shoot. Then sometimes we were shooting in an actual school where that was in session. You know, right. where we had like a little section of it. It was, uh, you know, not to be so like telling more stories, but it wasn't. It wasn't the easiest shoot. But no. And then we also had Claire, who's you know obviously a genius, but Claire was fourteen and needed and needed to constantly go to school and French class and you know, <laughs> luck, luckily she was a genius so it all worked That's out. That's a very interesting thing about that show where you know if you read or watch the pilot show uh, Claire Angela's in every frame she's in every frame right she was 13 years old right but she, she's 14. but she was in every frame of the show it, yes. it, you couldn't have a more first-person narrative than the pilot show it's all in her head there is so much voiceover there is so much just getting in her head. And then when you started to do the series, you had to reconceptualize, completely reconceptualize right. the concept of the show. You, you talk about it having, you talk about Rayanna having chicken box. You have a 14 year old star of your show. Who you had to, had to go to school. Had to go to school. So we, you, you we, we rewrote given, it. Do you remember the template? Do you remember that yes, we were given a, a template Yes. That was that if there were, in, we, at the time we had four acts, there were about five to six to seven to four, depending on how long they were scenes in an act, five, six scenes in an act. And there had to be two, remember, yeah. two scenes in every act that she wasn't in or we couldn't make our day, or we couldn't make our show. So that's a pretty strong, that's exactly what I'm talking about, like the chicken pox. That became, for me, and for you, that was like gold, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Because we had to take all the other characters who were great characters and wonderful actors and utilize them and ask ourselves, like, how would this person end up in a, in a relationship? It, it, just gave, it just gave and gave and gave. That was the gift that keep, kept on giving. Right. But it all started with this curtailing of... of, of you know, what you thought you needed the most. Not that we, you know, not that she wasn't invaluable. She was amazing. But you just couldn't have her for two scenes in every act. So it's like that's going to determine the story, interestingly. Uh, I mean, but I, I mean, I've, I've got to admit I love stuff like that. I mean, once you get over the initial devastation, because, <laughs> <laughs> because that's where you get, that's inspiring. Right, right. Um... I, I wanted to ask you a question about um, about Huge. So you created and co-ran a show with your daughter. And in and of itself, I'm just fascinated by this. <laughs> I mean, you know, like you hear, you know, husbands you're and the, wives. You're looking at Phoebe already. Husbands going. and wives doing shows together. That, or that's, brothers. Yeah, that's done. But but a, a mother and daughter. So I'm really I'm I'm so interested in um, that. I, I you know I'm interested in sort of how everything about it, how it came about, how it uh, you know to begin with, how you ended up deciding to work together on it, and what the what the process was like. How was that? The process and by the way, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask Savannah to to do a rebuttal after this. So be careful. Whatever you say, she can. You know. 
disavow. It basically came about because somebody in my life who knew Savannah very well and, and liked her writing, even though she was quite young, but had read a screenplay that she'd written and really liked it, got offered a TV movie at ABC Family that was a, a, an adaptation of a book called Huge, right? It was called Huge, and it was about girls at a fat camp. And my friend did not want to do it, but she said to the people at ABC Family, I actually met this, you know, this young writer who I think would be good writing this. So Savannah got that job, did write that movie. Right around the time she wrote the movie, everybody at ABC Family was like, we're not in the business of TV movies anymore. They don't make any money. And, but what did you like rewrite it like a million times? Sorry, that was the, it, the writer's strike happened. Oh, the writer's strike happened. Right. So at that point, we were very, you were very shocked because you thought it was sort of dead, right? And my friend, who was still a little bit involved because she had taken an executive producer credit on the movie, if you see what I mean, she'd sort of supervised her. Um, my friend said, you know, they're just going to put her with some stranger. Do you really want that to happen to your daughter? And um, it had never occurred to, I don't think, either of us, but we kind of looked at each other, and the thing I'm leaving out is that we had, we already had a, a relationship that was not only very close, but very close as writers. We would show each other our first drafts. We were, we were constantly in each other's work, um, to be blunt, and we were like really depending on each other almost like as first readers, and it's like that thing you were saying, who do you go to? Well, she was kind of my go-to. Mm. Um, through a lot of, of my stuff. So even once and again, um, go, even going back that far. So it was very natural in a way. Like it wasn't as weird as it sounds because we both knew how much, how much our writing had in common and we were sort of just felt like it probably could work, but I think I was a little nervous. I mean, I've told this before, but the thing where I really embarrassed myself, I guess, but it was just inevitable, was the only fights we would have was when I was being like a mom. <laughs> you know, like it was never the writer fight. We never pretty much had fights about writing. Um, even though we co-wrote a lot of the show, um, it was more like I would see her staying up till three in the morning and I'd say, you've got to go to sleep, you know? <laughs> and she would think, mom, I'm not done with the script. <laughs> Um, or, sh I mean, it was really laughable, ridiculous stuff like that. Right. <laughs> um, stuff that really should have been its own TV show. And how, how old were you when you, when this, when you wrote this? 25. 25. Or about to turn 25. And it was a great experience. And honestly, I mean, I would, I would do it again. Wouldn't you do it again? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, we, we, we loved our show, too. They just, they just canceled it. But we did get to do 10 episodes. And if you're ever on Amazon, it's it, and you like fat kids, <laughs> uh, check it out. Because um, I, I think it's probably the best show about fat kids on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> that is totally true. <laughs> Um, well, do you want to do one of these scenes? What yeah, I think we should. Okay. So we prepared something. Um, let's do your, because we've been talking so much about me. And we also mentioned Life with Brian. Oh, no, let's do yours. 
Oh, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is such a okay, beautiful so we're, scene. We're going to read this together. We each chose a scene from each other's, from one of each other's so-called <clears throat> live scripts. Um, we thought we could like just unpack it a little bit and, and maybe people could ask questions. What do you think? Like, that would be great. What if people wanted to ask questions about, I don't know, it may, may, nothing may occur to you, but. So do we need to, do you, do you want to set the scene up? What, yeah, what's like going on in the pilot at this in point? The, in the pilot, um, she's, well, it's hard to explain, but she's dyed her hair red. She's, she's, she's basically stopped hanging out with one girl and started hanging out with a wilder girl who's a little bit of, of trouble. And um, she's just, she's 15 and she's reevaluating her entire existence. And in What's so interesting about the scene that we're about to read, because I just went through and reread the, the pilot after all this time, and when I was reading it, I was so taken by um, so many of the scenes in the show. But in this one, um, you know, you really get to see, you know, she's, Angela is struggling so much with so many people in her life, her parents, her, you know, her best friend, her best old friend. She's trying to rediscover who she is. She's changing, but isn't comfortable with that yet. And in this scene, there's just this tenderness um, that you find when she has a moment alone with her dad. And I just was very moved by it. And so... Um, I think it's possible <clears throat> that the whole scene came out of a suggestion from, from uh, Ed Zwick. I have a feeling that, or, or Marshall, or both, I think they may have said to me, oh, what? She, she needs a scene alone with her dad. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that's, where, that's where these great storytelling instincts just really come in, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Just because I'm not sure I would have done it by myself. And the other, th the other thing, okay, so we'll just okay, read it. Read it. We'll just read it. Okay. So this, is, this part is a voiceover. Um, my dad sells printing. It was in my mom's family. My dad was just supposed to do it for a while when they first got married. Then he was supposed to go to chef school, but he never did. I'm not sure why. Then she moves closer to him, and he's stirring, and she gets to stir. You should see what they call chili con carne at school. First of all, it's just beans. That's not chili con carne. I know. Con carne with meat. I know. <laughs> Lack of meats destroying America. Um, a few years ago, my grandfather had this stroke and like forgot everybody's name. And my mom took over the business. She's kind of my dad's boss now, which I guess he tries not to think about. So mom won't be home till late. I think you give her too hard a time sometimes. She just, oh. Uh, she just... She just wants you to be happy. She wants everyone to be happy. No, that's you. The point is, she'd lay down her life for you. Out of nowhere, she'll get in this mood, and her lips will get all tight, and it's so obvious that she's just looking for someone to blame. Yeah, but you know that's not the real her. Just be nicer to her once in a while as an experiment. Okay. Dad, there's this thing at this friend of Rayanne's house tonight, like this rehearsal? <laughs> for this play we might all do for extra credit? 
And I know mom said no going out on school nights, but this is like part of school. <laughs> and I won't be home late, and I just really want to go. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally trying to do Claire. I know. <laughs> I can still remember her I intonation on that to do line, but this is so part of school. Genius. Um, yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, what I loved about, I know we get to ask, well, I would love you to ask questions if, about the scene, but yeah. I, what I love about the scene is it's this, it's this beautiful sort of tender moment and real moment between this father and daughter that you haven't really, she hasn't let down her guard before with her parents, and, and yet she, at the end of the scene, just totally lies to him about this thing in this way. So she's like kind of weirdly using and, 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 mm -hmm. and uh, they, the, the, the closeness that she just had, which was real. You know what I mean? It wasn't like she was doing it in a manipulative way. And yet she uses that closeness to, to kind of manipulate her father. And, you know, and she just does it so easily, you know, and, and, um, you know, and I just thought that was just so, like, um, true yeah. to life, you know, and I think that's one of the things that I find when you read any of Winnie's work, and, and particularly this pilot, um, you know, that there's just, it just is so, um, there's, it's so layered, you know, and, and, and it's really beautiful, so... Yeah. I, does anyone have questions on the scene? Yes. Wait, I'm uh, going to put on my. Sort of a free question. I, I did want to know where this character came from to you. Is it based on. I have a 14 year old daughter. Well, my daughter was seven at the time, so it wasn't based on my daughter. No, I, was it based on. Uh, it, it was such a. I remember reading it 20 whatever years ago before it was on the air and just being knocked out by it and how true it was. Thank you. And I've told you that before. Thank uh, you. I, I was in South Carolina, and I had a bunch of scripts, and it was blew um, me away. And it was weird. But I, where did this, where did Claire come from? I guess. Claire. Uh, she came from Soho. Not Claire. Not Claire. Angela. <laughs> she came from heaven. Um, um, you know, really, it was just. It was this thing that Marshall and Ed had the idea. They said to me, they wanted to do a show that I would write, and they said to me, we think you should do, a, I've said this so many times, so p forgive me if people are, you know, have heard it so many times, but they said, we think you should do a teenage girl. They were interested in the idea of doing a teenage girl back from when they had been on Family. They had been on a, no one here, you're too young to remember, but there was a show called Family. It was a beautiful drama, family drama, and there was a girl on the show, a young teen named Buddy, that was her character, and when they would try to write stuff like that, exactly stuff like that for Buddy, the, the showrunner would go, our Buddy wouldn't do that. Mm. And they, they still had this residual feeling of like there should be a teenage girl who should like behave like a teenage girl and get to be get to have things wrong with her and get to make mistakes and all the and and get to own her sexuality and all those kind of ideas and so they sort of cast me they looked at me and went we think you should do that i i have said this so many times i think you could have locked me in a room 
I, like I say, my daughter was seven. I didn't know any teens at that point. I knew seven-year-olds and I knew moms. <laughs> and I sort of know my husband. <laughs> I just had no, I just was not on the verge of thinking of that idea. This is where I think fate does really, you know, the idea of having people come into your life who, who can see something in you that you don't, that you yourself don't see. And they were very convinced that that would be a good um, character for me. And where she actually came from, I really think it was such <coughs> an amalgam for me. I mean, it was partly, it was partly me at that age, but it was partly not me at that age. I just, I do remember, I did have a girl, I mean, I've said this before too, I did have a friend who my parents didn't approve of. I'm sure many people here <laughs> had one of those. And my, my friend was a lot like Rayanne. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But, but um, I, was, I was actually terrified that she was going to contact me again. <laughs> but she's probably in prison. <laughs> so she didn't turn up. But I, I remember you... <laughs> Um, and I, but I remember you talking about part of your process in at the very early stages was didn't you write a lot of her yes just I, I just wrote out wrote her, voice, her voice her voice her like a diary like of, a diary of, and some of that stuff actually and some of this became the voiceover because Ed Ed had the idea because one day he called me and it was one of those calls that you get where it was like how's it going <laughs> and um, I was just I had I I was just absolutely. I was just nothing. I was just had nothing. And he s and I said I found the courage to tell him that I just was stalled and I felt so horrible. And he said, "Oh, you know, I don't try oh, this is a good thing to say about your strategy when you said have a strategy." He said, "Oh, don't try to write the pilot. Just just write just write her diary. Just write entries in her diary." It was so brilliant of him. So that, you know, that is really a good strategy. Of course, not everyone's going to write entries of a diary of a 15-year-old girl. But in other words, don't think to yourself, oh, I've got to write this pilot or this thing, whatever it is that's upsetting you or making you feel shut down. Say, I'm going to do something that's much, much easier for me to do that's not a big bite, you know, that's a small little, almost like a throwaway. Do you know what I mean? And then you get your, you prime the pump that way. Because in writing this diary, I started to amuse myself, as you can imagine. <laughs> and I started to t get touched. And I started to remember, you know, the, the, this, all these ideas of memory. You know, because really, I, I've said this too before, so forgive me. But it's like you do block out things that are a little bit painful or embarrassing called adolescence. Um, <laughs> and so... Like a lot, I just remember that year, so many people, um, press and people at parties, they were just always saying to me, so, you know, like, do you, ha do you know a lot of teenagers? Do you, you know, um, do you have a teenage daughter? And I was like, look at me, I'm a female. Like I was a long, long time ago, I was a teenager. And um, it's, you know, I can, just, I don't want to remember how horrible it was, but I am now remembering it and there's tons of material in there. You know what I mean? If you have the willingness to kind of access it and that, and that brings us back to how are you going to access it? Well, for me, writing a diary entry brought it in, you know? And also, I did visit, I was mentioning this recently, I, I visited a high school, I did, through the Writers Guild, I did two days of, um, what do you call, you know, guest teaching. And I did it for material. 
And boy, did I get some material. <laughs> because what happened is it brought back the memories. Mm. That horrible bell, the locker clanging, the, the, the filth, uh, pe <laughs> pe people falling asleep in class. I mean, all of those things that you've kind of blocked out because you're an adult now and you never have to go back. I mean, just the feeling that you're locked in a room and the clock is going like this, like it's so slow. And you're, you, you can't just get up and leave. Like you're stuck like a, like a prisoner. Um, you know, it just flooded me back because all, all public high schools are kind of, in America, pretty much horribly the same, I think. I mean, unless you're in a really cushy neighborhood. Um, so anyway. So let's open it up for any, any questions about, uh, for, for Winnie. Yes. Or for Jason. Yeah, I, I, I was hoping I was hoping it would be helpful to see like a specific scene. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, well, it's amazing how much you're able to get across, really, in just two pages about Angela and, and, and the relationship. And um, like I think if I tried to write this, it'd be seven pages long. So, oh, like, but that's it, such a good point. That's what I was going to ask. Is it, does yes. it come out long and then you pare it down? Yes. Okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Like when I read the pilot now, I kind of go, wow, you're so good. But, <laughs> but that, you know, that took like a million drafts <laughs> and notes and people going like this just is, you know, this scene is terrible or, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It, like it looks yeah. so effortless and it so isn't. So you have to let yourself write a long, boring, not very good version and it should be so long. And what I like to do often is I almost make, sometimes after I've been doing that for a while, I almost make a list of the things that I'm trying to have the scene convey. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I do that when I'm confused about a scene. <clears throat> or if I have multiple people in a scene or multiple events, mm -hmm. um, sometimes the scene is very simple. This is a rather simple scene, but it does have that twist, mm -hmm. like you're saying where she lies <laughs> to the person she most loves. And then interestingly, he's lying to her. And, to, and that's what we find out at the end. So they're both liars, and they're both great people. But yes, please write a long, messy, terrible version. You can't do everything in one draft. You know, you can't, like, like after my first draft of this, or my third, or whatever draft I was had the courage to show the guys, they said this. They both said the same thing to me. You haven't loved the parents enough. Did I ever tell you that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They said you fell in so in love with the teens. The teens are like these living, breathing, fully dimensional people, and the parents are like little stick figures. And I went, whoa! And I'm a parent, like so. That's sort of sad, because um, <laughs> at that time I was a 40-year-old mother, you know. But I hadn't let myself. And and here's the gift of it. It's not like you're inferior or you're not good or smart. You can only do one thing at a time. Those drafts were to develop Angela and her friends. And then I could go back. I love that you're nodding. Thank you. Um, another beautiful moment behind you. <laughs> um, I love that you can go back. That's what you're supposed to do. And then it's a draft just for the parents, just to look at those parents and what can we, what what do I feel for them, really, you know? And that's probably where I discovered the whole thing about her being a former, you know, the most popular girl and he being the former nerd and... It's one, to add to what you're saying, which, because I think it's such a important and, and, and profound thing, is, a is that a lot of times 
it's like another way of what you're saying. A lot of times you'll be focusing on one character or certain characters, and you'll have the other characters there to service what you, you know, to say what you want them to say. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what I'll do, or I'll, or I'll ask a writer to do, is say, okay, now do a pass from this other character's perspective. Do the whole pass of the script. Just think about this one character. Like, why are they, I don't understand, why are they saying that there? Why are they agreeing to it? Because it's the writer, as writers, we want to move things forward. Right. And we want to get things in the next step. So it's, but um, the way that ultimately things really get lifted to another level is when all of your characters are, are you know, have are in their own movie or the stars in their, their own, own movie. and the stars their own movie. Like yeah. it's like you know, it's like we all, as we become older, especially writers, because we're so noticing human behavior, we realize like everybody is complicated. It's not just me. You know, everybody is complicated, and if a person seems like they're not, that's just, to be frank, that's just a cover. You know, um, and it's like. Well, of course. I mean, I've been frank the whole time. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, there's nothing I haven't, been, you know, I haven't dissembled. But I mean, you see, if you see, if you see people, to me, what you're really seeing is a personality that pe that has been assembled in order to function in the world. And one of the things I really like to do, and and I'm not alone, is I like to go, okay, here's the personality that's been assembled, and if you delicately lift the veil, what's underneath that? And what's underneath that? honestly, is that we're all connected. It's not that we're all identical, but we're all connected. And those people that seem so different from us, they're really us. They're us in another form, right? So it's like, that's why what, he, what Jason just gave you was gold, because that person in the scene isn't thinking, well, I'm glad I get to be in her scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they're going, uh, they have their own motives, their own needs, their own complicated... <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Excuse me, Graham. Um, you said that in, in a different form, people are alike. You said, in a, Stephen Graham, in a different form, you said people are alike. What if your agent called you up on a Monday morning and said, when are you really scored? You're offered the chance to write the next Batman sequel. <laughs> and or... You're offered the chance to write the next Jurassic Park. And we need richer characters. Because all these. those people are on drugs, and <laughs> they, made that they made that worthy decision. Um, I, do you really think someone would hire me to do that? I mean, lo <laughs> just look at me and consider. <laughs> uh, I'm just not, you know, I'm not going to shine in that, in that um, honestly. I mean, that's not really going to be where I'm going to shine. I mean... <laughs> you, you know, you want to, you wanna, I think, know your own strengths to some extent. That doesn't mean I want to be, you know, pigeonholed. I mean, you know, like after my so-called life, one, one, one of the things I think you may know about me is that a lot, a lot of people were offering me, or not a lot, but just once in a while, were offering me like, you know, would you like to do this show about a teenage girl or a bunch of teenage girls? And I was like, no. <laughs> and, um, and then after Wicked, it was like teenage witches. And... <laughs> And I, I just felt there was so much more to me. <laughs> so that's why I'm writing about roadies. <laughs> yes. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm a really big fan of Roswell. 
and I like my so-called life as well. Um, so I was wondering if you guys could speak to um, the and I heard Friday Night Lights. You don't even know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All I'm right, you've got a lot of viewing to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could speak to the recent trend of revivals in television, TV shows coming into movies, and TV shows coming back, like Veronica Mars and Heroes and all this stuff, where they're bringing back things that have been off the air for years. That's just people being frightened. I mean, when something has a name that's supposedly been pre-sold, they people just people by people. I mean executives, They've, they feel less frightened because they feel like there's a reason for their decision. They can point, hi, um, they, they can point to like something and go, well, that was once sold a stick of butter. You know, like it's not smart, I don't think. I mean, in my little opinion, my humble opinion, because it's not innovative and really that's not really how you really make money, I think, by being slavish and sort of, uh, I just don't think it ever works, but, or, or if it does work, it's a short-term working, but, I, I, you know, now I've just sounded so contemptuous. I mean, I, I don't really concern myself, honestly, I so don't think about things like that. I think if you think about things like that, you are just, your eye is not on the ball. And, and, and I never s use sports metaphors. I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what came over me. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, honestly, you have to be thinking about your own good writing and, and, what, and what you're going to write to wow people, you know, um, to, to get them to, to get excited, to get, to get actors to get excited. Um, something, something, something from your heart. I mean, if you're, if you're thinking about trends, it's just not going to be a good idea. But you don't ever think of like, a revival of something that you've done, like, oh, what if I could do this again? You know, that sort no, of thing? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's not completely true. <laughs> Hold on one second. <laughs> but we don't have to go into all the details. <laughs> okay. I guess I have the mic. Um, I just wanted to go back real quick, um, this idea of layers that you were talking about, because I'm finding, um, you know, I love what you said about the diary and trying to get into it. I'm finding with some of my own work right now, um, it's progressed to the point, which I love, where I can see scenes are coming I'm, and I'm spitting them out. You know, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really liking what's coming out. Now, I'm, I'm with my husband's uh, former actor, and it's been wonderful to have him as a, as a sounding board and as a, you know, he's got some wonderful ideas. And the idea of all of us, you know, also taking some classes to really get deeper. And I think where I get stuck, and it, he really challenges me with this, mm -hmm. is that idea of um, going down just even deeper. Like yes. what I loved about the scene we just read are the layers, what's not being said. And I wonder if you have a technique. I, Jason just mentioned one that he does with his writers. Mm -hmm. um, also, in a general sense, with some of the characters, I'm sure it's, well, it's different for everyone. It's unique for everyone. But I'm, is there a technique that you use to, to, to go to that place? Well, there's many. I'm going to say one thing that's going to sound a little bit reductive, and it's going to sound a little Mickey Mouse. So I don't want you to take it too literally. But um, people who know me will know that my father was in the printing business. Now, my father, uh, it's just sort of a different situation, but not completely. And there's this thing in acting called a hot prop. Do you know what that means? 
Well, sometimes people will, on stage, have something with them that is from their life, and it will be almost like a talisman on stage that when they look at it, it brings them to a certain place. Do you know what I mean? And it could be very small. And I incorporate that sometimes. Like, for instance, I remember now, and I don't usually think about this, but in a very early draft, not even draft, but probably idea, writing down ideas, he was not a printer. He did not have a printing business. He worked at the airport. And you know what? I think I just was having some trouble. And I think I just pulled something in that brought me some emotion. Like with my dad, my dad came from Omaha. He was in the printing business. If you mention the word Omaha to me, I have my dad downloads. Do you know what I mean? And if you mention the word printing business to me, my dad downloads. And it gives me emotion, and it brings me to a certain place. And that's something you learn if, you're, if you do act. You learn that you have to find a way to, there's all kinds of ways. There's so many ways. It's like you can make it up. You, you, it shouldn't feel like a straitjacket. And that's why I gave you the little preamble about don't take this too literally and don't turn this into, oh, she writes autobiographically, because it, I swear it isn't. Like, there weren't two boys in love with me. There were none boys in love with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's just an example. <laughs> and, like, my girlfriend, like, she and I never got home in a police car, but it could have happened. But... But, but with the printing thing, I was literally giving myself something that was accessing something for me. Do you see what I mean? And it just, and I think a lot of times also, um, it has to do with feeling free. You know, if you feel like you have to get it right, or it has to be two and a half pages, or it's not a very free feeling, and it's very hard to have something surprising come upon you because you're very clenched up. So it's like, what is going to help with that freedom? Well, just the idea, you know, we all know it from Anne um, Lamott, but just the idea of like, I'm going to write the worst version of this possible, like the worst, and then just take off the pressure of it has to be good, because that whole idea is a very difficult idea to live with. You know what I mean? And what is good, anyway? You know. Another thing that's freeing about that, I think, is if you think about the process of writing as rewriting, you know, and I, you know, like, when I first started as a writer, I hated, like, the concept of rewriting was, like, abhorrent to me. Like, I thought, you know, when I first started, I thought, I'm going to, you know, the idea was to just write something, and then if you had to change it, it was like, oh, my God, you know, uh, but now, but what's so, what I think what's so freeing about it is the idea of rewriting is that if you once you have something down and you have it on paper you know then you can take it and transform it it's kind of like one of my favorite things to do in the world is being in the editing room and i love being in the editing room because editing to me is is writing it's the i swear it's the same process as writing mm -hmm. You're telling story, and you're telling the story that you thought you were going to, you know, you're taking what you thought you were going to tell when you wrote the script, and you're like, well, this is what I got, and now I have to make it work. Right. Um, but what's so fun in the editing room is you're never stuck with a blank page. You have, the, well, you have this choice or this choice. You've got what they've already done. Right. 
and you and you uh, you know and you and you have the, the you know it's like fun because it's you it's easy to get in there and work and I think it's a you know to me the process of 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 writing is like that I personally I feel like doing a first draft of anything is the most difficult part of the process. Me too. And I still feel And the more I get, you get to sort of mine that material, the more it becomes, I actually enjoy it. I feel the same exact way. I mean, I was talking about how much I hate writing, but the truth is what I really hate is, or I shouldn't use the word, it's a love-hate relationship, but I mean, it's that first draft fear that, that will come over me. But it's like what I love is playing and, and getting closer. There's something that I just want to share with you, which is that we have time, right? Yeah. Which is that with this play I've been mentioning all evening, um, I had a, fa a fascinating thing happen that I, I thought was so touching and interesting, which is that I had this moment in the play where uh, there was a prop involved. And what the prop was was a, um, a tangled bunch of Christmas lights. And I had this from almost the very, very first draft, probably from the first draft. And it was something that one of the characters, he had a t I had him in the kitchen. And what was he doing? I threw him this tangled bunch of Christmas lights. He was trying to untangle them. And it was very minor. It was very minor. And this is, I'm talking about years go by, and I'm rewriting and doing other things and rewriting and blocked and not blocked. But nothing ever changed. Like, there was always these Christmas lights, and he was doing, just trying to untangle them. And very many times, maybe three times a year, I, or maybe more, I would think to myself, what are those fakakta Christmas lights doing there? <laughs> what are they? I would think it's so, you know, sometimes you beat yourself up. It's so arbitrary. It's so meaningless. It could be anything. Why are they Christmas lights? Why? What? Are, who are you? You know, <laughs> why can't you write better? And then one day, and this is so many years into it, I was looking for a way to deepen this relationship between two main characters. And I, I, it suddenly occurred to me I wanted to show that there was a mystical connection between these two that they didn't even understand or could voice. And it suddenly occurred to me that he could be trying to untangle them. And, and rather, th in the beginning drafts, I had him very good at untangling Christmas lights. I thought, what if he's struggling with them? And she goes over and starts to untangle them. And together, while they're the talking of other things, Suddenly, these lights are untangled, and now they're connected by this perfect string of lights. Okay? And I get chills every time I say it. Because I didn't know what the Christmas lights were for, but they had a deeper purpose. And so sometimes what you have to do, not always, sometimes you need to find something new. But sometimes things are lying right there in your script, and you haven't actually delved into them. Do you see what I mean? And it just, you've taken them for granted. They're just these lights, you know. But they, they could have a deeper purpose. That's my, that's my point. And it's very mysterious, isn't it? Because I couldn't have thought of that so early. I needed many years. I mean, don't be as slow as me. <laughs> but I, no, it was in the right time. It was in the right time, so. Are we good? Yeah. Oh, yeah. this person and then this person. Oh, is that cool? Yeah. Were you supposed to do that? <laughs> yeah, no, you, you took my one job away from me. <laughs> this is somewhat off topic. 
It's <laughs> somewhat off topic, but I, I have to take the opportunity to ask, how did you get involved with Wicked? And just in the general sense, because I know this could be a two-hour talk, yeah, how I you won't really the novel to, oh, uh, it's such to a, big a, a book. It, just to tell you, if you really care, um, if you go onto the Dramatist Guild website, they have Stephen and I on, on video discussing this for hours. And it's we go into a lot of detail of how we wrote Wicked. And there's some good stuff in there. Oh, wow. If you're interested in Wicked, if you're not interested in Wicked, you're not going to want to go there. Um, <laughs> but if for those who like musicals, there's some, in, you know, because Stephen Schwartz is a genius, and he's really amazing at writing musicals. He probably knows more about writing musicals than anyone living, uh, in my opinion. And he's just a true, he's been doing it successfully since he was 21 years old. Um, and and he's, he's, he's an incredible person. So... A lot of what happened is that he 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 thought I would be a good person. Remember, I mentioned that musical that nobody liked in New York. He had seen it, and he didn't hate it as much as others. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I had a really can I just say a really touching story. I had something happen recently which really was touching, and it, it makes you realize that you mustn't 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 give too much put too much importance on what people write about you or how people respond to your work which is that um, th at this place where my play is being done, there's this woman I've been dealing with who does publicity, so she had been asking me questions and, and stuff. And one day she said to me, she was on the phone with me, and she said to me, Winnie, I have to tell you something. I come from Cincinnati, and when I was 10, you were in Cincinnati. I was actually pregnant with Savannah, doing your first musical, the one that later came to New York and, and didn't do well. And she said, and my family went to the Cincinnati Playhouse in the park to see it, and it's our favorite musical we've ever seen. <laughs> and do you see what I mean? It's like, first of all, I was stunned. I was like, you mean it's not horrible? <laughs> because, because we're very, we're all, as Marvin Gaye says, <laughs> we're all very sensitive people. <laughs> And, or we wouldn't be doing this. Do you see what I mean? We really would not have all met. <laughs> so we're very sensitive. So when you publicly get, you know, it's kind of lacerated like that, it, it, it stings. And so you, you can find yourself saying, well, it really was terrible. But there's no such thing as terrible or wonderful. The truth is that for that family, it's their favorite musical. That's the reality in that family in Cincinnati. Other people felt differently. That's all that happened. So when you start to take that in, it's a very much more freeing way to approach, you know, what hopefully will you will be, you know, getting response. Do you see what, do you see what I mean? Um, that wasn't your question, but go, just go to the just go to the drama skill drama skill website. They'll explain it to you. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, yes. Yeah, she, she was gonna right? Yeah. Does she have a, yeah. Um, my so-called life ended too soon. And um, at the beginning, you said that you really wanted to get her, uh, the big beats out there for Angela. Right. Like, what right. could we not miss about this girl's life? And so I was just wondering if there were any enormous beats that we didn't get to see that you had imagined for her. Oh, sure. And what, what was maybe one of your favorites that we didn't get to see, if you can remember? <laughs> It's not that I can't remember. It's that I don't really know how to answer because they weren't really real to me. I was just waiting for that pickup. Mm. 
And I kind of knew it wasn't coming, and so I never got that invested in my, I mean, I've said this before, but my, I don't know if I've told you this. I think I have, but my, my main thing I had, maybe you had some ideas. In my mind, I had this idea that I was going to split up the parents, which I was already prefiguring because he was falling in love with someone. I was going to split them up, and I was going to have the mother go into a deep depression. You know, the mother was the former cheerleader and sort of very can-do. Um, I was going to have her fall into the kind of depression where you can't get out of bed. And I was going to have Angela have to kind of take over being, being, running the family and being in charge of her sister and helping her sister and being like, being almost like a mini adult. And that was one idea I had that I, I don't think I've shared with that many people. Uh, did mm. I ever tell you that? No, I didn't know that. Did you have ideas? No, but I remember, the, weren't you also? <clears throat> I was just trying to do a good finale. I mean, right. you know, final episode. Right. But you were also <clears throat> setting up yes. Angela and, and Brian. Well, what I was going to do was I was going to have Angela have a horrible relationship, but a very tor tormented, you know, tor torrid one with, with Jordan Carolano. And, and Brian was going to be involved with Delia. Right. And they would go to each other for, for, for um, you know, comfort about their horrible relationships. I think, good. I think that's pretty good. <laughs> I feel like, you know, some, one of the things you kind of look for is you look for something that, as we say, you can play for a while, like that isn't going to run out of steam. And I feel like I could have done that for a while. Michael. If it had gone longer, which would have been wonderful, um, since they were sophomores, uh, you know, w would we have followed Angela to college? Like, how would that have played out with the supporting cast? God knows. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't happen that way. I, th I like perfectly well how it happened. I think it was perfect, personally. Oh, this gentleman in the back, actually. Are we, are, is everybody good? Can we stay a few more minutes? What's the, uh... Yeah, we're totally fine. If okay, you guys are good. Yeah. Two minutes, okay. Hey, my name is Jared. Thank you guys so much for coming in. Um, I have more of a strategic career question. Um, I just completed a year-long program. It's a veterans writing program here at the Guild. Um, Congratulations. The, thank you. At the very end of it, we had a chance to pitch our pilots and whatnot. And everybody wants to see my pilot, but I, I don't feel it's ready. So... A while ago, you said don't, uh, one of these gentlemen's questions, you said don't worry about it being perfect, just being good. But I've also heard that uh, the conflicting argument that it has to be perfect because sometimes you only get one shot. Well, I wasn't telling him to show people those terrible drafts. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a process of writing. That's yeah. a process of making something better. That's private. And or just for your friend, who's a good writer, hopefully. And at what point should we say, okay, now I'm ready to send it to these professionals, like network executives and whatnot? What do you think, Jason? Um, uh, you know, I think that I, I do think that that's true, that you do have one, sh one shot. I mean, when, when s not to say, the, the, you know, not to make it too dramatic, but I do think with, with a piece of writing, um, you know, it's important to get it to the point where you feel confident in it and you believe in it um, um, before you give it to somebody who, you know, to, especially with that if you have created um, 
a situation where there are people waiting to read stuff and people are interested in it, you know, um, you know, it's. I think it's worth it to spend to spend the time on it to uh, get to the point where you um, really believe in it. And if you have people that you can um, trust to, to sort of show it to and who, who can sort of help you with that decision, I think that would be good too. You know, like people who are trusted who sort of have some sort of knowledge and experience um, that, because, uh, you know, that would be helpful too. But I think it is something that it's, it, it's, it's. Um, I think it's it's worth it for you, since you've put so much time in already, to get it to the point where you're like, okay, this is this is a draft that I feel I believe in, and it doesn't have to ever feel like perfect, perfect, right? Or that it won't, because because I guarantee that if, if if somebody loves it and wants to do it, it'll change fifty times before it happens, you know, and it should. That's okay, you know. But it's it's it should feel like it's you know for it's it's working as a as sort of as a piece of, for what it is that that would be my gut on it. There's a lot of questions. I just have to make sure people are okay. Are you okay? Um, yeah. Why don't we? We're, why don't we put a? We have to have a boundary. Somebody, you're supposed to put a clock on this. Don't make me the bad guy. How, how much time should we do? Well, I actually have a question. <laughs> you're making it worse. You're making it worse. Okay. Uh, how about three more questions and and mine real quick? Three more questions. Uh, yeah, three more quick. questions plus yours. Yeah. Or, yeah. It's, a, it's a good question. Right. It's a really quick, good okay. question. It's really quick. Uh, we know, obviously, why uh, Jason chose um, the scene that you guys just read. Um, when you, why did you choose uh, Jason's scene? Everybody has in their hand um, uh, Life of Brian, which is an episode of Jason wrote of My So-Called Life, which is also an awesome episode, and we were wondering why. Well, because it's a scene where I would say that, first of all, it's a, it's a culminating scene where everything in the plot has been leading up to this moment, to this terrible moment when, um, you know, when she, you know, he's kind of trapped in his own, hoisted by his own petard, as they say. But what I think I was really looking at is the fact that the scene gets hijacked and the person themselves, the Brian Krakow character, thinks that he's in a certain scene. He thinks he's in a scene where he's in control, and he's just telling Ricky, "Just don't, don't be here because I need my space and I need, I might need privacy." And he thinks he's got it handled. And you know, Angela walks into the scene and just demolishes his ability to be in control and makes him feel like an idiot. And and the, so the it's it's a to me a kind of a classic the whole the whole episode if you ever get to see it which is wonderful has a farcical nature because people are making plans and plotting and trying to figure out it's all about it's all going to culminate in this dance and now they're at the dance and he's with the girl that he wants to be at the dance with and she you know that line where she says you know why would we want privacy and he's like we wouldn't <laughs> you know He's just so trapped. And um, and I, I just love that his whole, you know, that's a classic comedy um, trope, I guess you would say, where somebody has a plan that they have finally achieved, and it gets 
you know, the rug gets pulled out and their whole plan crumples and is de is destroyed. And so it's, it's helpful, I think, I think that's one of the reasons I chose it, it's, it's helpful to look at, even though it's so original and, and kind of contemporary, that there's a classic element to what he did that's just sort of, it's good to understand where these things come from. You know, a, a, it's a classic comedy setup, you might almost say, but done in a drama. And so I, for that reason. All right, all right so, okay, Adam, um, you asked me a question before. So this, this young woman here with the, yes, you, with the lumber jacket, <laughs> and um, this guy in the back, and then we'll be done. Um, so, hope make them good. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, how do you go about developing a bunch of characters in an ensemble without overstuffing your script? You've, you've got to take that one. That's like, you're the king. Um, I go for the overstuff the script <laughs> strategy. I really do. I, I feel like the... Um, um, you know, I, I, I think on Friday Lights I had this experience with this sort of dealing with a very large ensemble where not only were you dealing with our the people who were the series regulars and people that you had, we expected to know, but there were many, many characters in that show that all we wound up giving story with, and, and that show just had the, for some reason it held so much story, and we when we were breaking stories in the show, we could have six or seven or sometimes threads of eight storylines going on in a, it's like a 42, 43 minute episode. And um, so I really f found a, a lot of inspiration and beauty in, in, in that and in, in the, in, the um, in, in, in having, you know, that, you know, to me that was a lot of what that show kind of wasn't similar in a way in, in, with parenthood that um, it was um, part, uh, I think a lot of what I really loved about both those shows is what a large group of people they are. So I, I kind of, I believe in those sort of big stories, but I think what I would say um, is, um, <clears throat> you know, to the point that y you start to feel, um, kind of um, it's, it's, it's interrupting your process of telling stories you want to tell, then you have to make those hard decisions. You know, that's, that's you know, like, um, and, um, and that's definitely something that you have to do. And one of the things th is about TV that's so great is it keeps going on. So if you have a character that you love that you cut out of a pilot script, they can be introduced and uh, later and that's no joke. I mean, I have done it. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, so you don't have to let go of it in a, in a forever. Um, but sometimes you have to, you know, you do have to like sort of make those hard choices. Thank you. Um, so I consider both of you to be like masters of voices with your characters. <coughs> like you can turn on Friday Night Lights or Parenthood from the other room, and I, I know that it's one of those shows because the characters are free to like stumble over their words or repeat themselves. And I feel the same way about Angela Chase, where I know 
when something comes out of my mouth and it's heavily influenced by the fact that I've watched my so-called life a hundred times. <laughs> so I was kind of caught off guard when you were reading the scene and then you said, oh, I'm, I'm doing Claire. So I guess my question is, you as the writer consider yourself to be doing an impression of Claire. I just assumed that Claire was following extreme direction from you and it well, sounded both. that way in your head. It's, it's both. I mean, part of the beauty of doing the series, and it's really a gift, is you don't, unlike, let's say, a play or, or a movie, you, you've, you, you travel through time with people, and those actors, are they stay with you. And you get to do this with them, and then you get to do that with them, and then it's the first time you ever saw, you know, see her do this. And it's a very much a give and take. I mean, there's a way in which Claire was absolutely taking from me, and there's a way in which I was taking from her for, for, for real. And I don't even know what that, I can't even quantify what that was. That was just really natural for both of us. And by the way, and Jason knows this, because we never talked about it. I don't, I, we, we maybe had one real conversation, but we never talked about that. You know, I think we were talking about massage places where you could get a good head massage or something. <laughs> we, we've talked about it since, now that she's grown up, but we, we, it was so real and deep that we couldn't even talk about it. I think I would have just started crying if I tried to talk about it. And, you know, not everyone is as genius as Claire, but, but that is something that you get to have. You get to, it's like a conversation. It's like you give them the script, and their conversation back to you is what they do with it. You know what I mean? Uh, I think it, I'll, I'll speak loudly. Well, Thanks. It's for the recorders. Oh, gosh. OK. All right. Um, I was going to start off with the question being, have you ever been confused? And it's so general that I'll, I'll be specific. I had, I've mostly written animated comedy. And I wrote my first drama. and. Um, I have friends who write for shows, and so I picked three shows that I totally love. I don't know you guys, so I would have asked you, but uh, I'm kidding. Um, and they read the script. I see. And, and they liked it a lot, each, each one of them. My problem, my quandary is, is that each one had a different tweak that they would take on it. Oh. And I'm, I'm in that weird place where I'd written eight drafts and sort of had become so invested and was so in the world and was able to access that in those moments of discovery and right. things happening. And now I have this feeling, not looking for perfection, which I totally understand, but I have this feeling like, what is the right move? But are you saying that they're contradictory notes? Or are you saying that they just have three separate things that they're talking about? They're not three specifics, but they are actually the things all agree on is they like that it's completely unorthodox. The second thing they agree on is they like how kind of heartbreaking it is and that the characters are deep. But they, each one wants to see a little bit more of a particular oh, trait. Oh, people are character. just like that. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's like, why couldn't your show have been longer? Because it wasn't. You know, get over it. <laughs> If they like something, they just want more. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I mean, just wanna, I just want to like. Maybe it should just be a little more this, but, you know, maybe I'm, 
I mean, you have to, you have to listen to yourself. Finally, getting back into that space of where I was, where I can sit down and hear the people the I created privately. Yeah, the yeah. Private place. What do you think? It's kind of a weird question. No, it's not. <clears throat> it's a good question. It is a good question. You know, I think that what I try to do when I'm, you know, writing something new and I'm trying to get, I'm trying, I'm trying to, you know, before I hand it in to whoever it is for, uh, you know, and I, I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to gather um, the things from people that I'm trying to get like a collective understanding of what the experience is to read it because I can't have that I can only I can't read it with the object objectivity of somebody who hasn't who didn't write it so I'm trying to get like the the uh, like a like a like I'm trying to come up with like a collective understanding of what what it is that people are you know uh, not getting that I'm trying to communicate or they don't like that I'm trying to communicate or that just isn't playing or isn't working. You know, every, every time that you write, it, it's inevitable that you're going to have blind spots as a writer. There are going to be things that you think uh, it's so obvious about what you're communicating that just isn't. And the only way to know that, the only way to get that, is to give it to people who haven't read it. So I feel like what I'm looking for is the commonality. What I'm looking for is like, because it's true, everybody's going to re react personally, and they're going to all have their specific things, and they're all going to tell you some di something different, and that'll just drive you crazy. But what you, I think, what you want to try to find to do, what you want to do, is find what is there like something common that you're hearing, something that you're consistently getting, that can help you communicate better what you want, what you're trying to put out there, so that when you're giving it to somebody to read it to hopefully you know buy it or make it or whatever whatever it is that you have will have you won't get um, you know what I mean you won't you won't have um, miss the opportunity to solve that issue you know you know if but I do think if I feel like you have to getting feedback is so important but you have to own that then. You know, I used to, there was one show, the Roswell show, that you were talking about, about, I got so many notes from the network on that show, and I didn't know what hit me, because I had been working with <laughs> Winnie and Ed and Marshall, they didn't get notes, there were no notes. If we got notes, we ignored. Yeah, but there wasn't, it was, it was like, they, we did not get notes. I mean, I mean, we got notes from, you know, I got notes from you. <laughs> That, I got notes from, you know, you got notes from Ed and Marshall, got, yeah. but it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, but in Roswell I got so many notes, and um, because it was just like what that show could have been could have gone in so many different directions, and I had my idea of what, it, what, what, of what direction I wanted it to be. The network had their idea, and it was, you know, very different, mm -hmm. and um, so I, while we, it, it, it sort of drove me so crazy and I remember, like, at some point, I, I created this saying to myself, which was, there are, only, there are no bad notes, there are only bad rewrites, which to me meant that a note can, you know, nobody's giving you a note because they want to be cruel or mean. They're giving you a note because they want to help you. Not every note does help. Right. So what you need to do is have, take ownership of what you're, get, you know, of what, of the, of what you're hearing from people 
and decide what you're going to do with that. And that's the way, you know, like, you know, it, you know, it's like, it's, it's a, one of the really important, you know, skills that you need to, to continue to develop as a writer is to be able to make drafts better. Like you want to, you know, and, and I think, and that is something that I think comes from the more you do it. And I think early on when you're writing, you tend to more have either lateral drafts or drafts that sort of this thing kind of gets worse. And the way that I think, you know, from, from doing it over and over again, the way that I think things get better and better as you do it is because you're taking ownership. You're able to hear what people are saying, really interpret it, really understand it, not have the knee-jerk response of, is like, oh, that sucked, or oh, they like me, you know what I mean, or oh, you know what I mean, but really in try to like put, get all that judgment of it out of your head, which is very hard, and just really try to understand what is it that people are, you know, what, 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 are, what, what are people, you know, sort of, uh, w responding to and not responding to, and then be, then you can sort of address it, um, you know, uh, you know, as, from a place of sort of strength as a writer. Okay, great, thank you. Good luck too. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thank you guys so much. Thank that was you. great, and thank you so much to Winnie. Winnie.